Hello, hello. <laughs> hello. So welcome back to One Murder at a Time. Yeah, we took a week off. Um, Paul and I were on vacation. Mm-hmm. Separate vacations. But <laughs> <laughs> Paul went for his RC competition that he did very well at. You went to visit your friend. I went to visit a friend in Tennessee. So we took a week off, but um, we're going to do two episodes Archie's scratching his neck in the background, so I apologize. But, uh, yeah, we're going to uh, give you two episodes this week to make up for missing last week. So um, we hope that makes up for it. Well, I'll be honest with you. Um, when you sent me this one, I actually almost said I didn't want to do it because anybody who knows a lot, of, even not a whole lot, if you are into true crime at all, knows about this case. It's, you know, nationally known. It's that, you know new precedents and things like that and it's one that really really bothers me and i really started to say eh i don't want to do it let's do something else just because it does like it's you know there are certain things that just bother you yeah and everybody's different it's different things for different people but for me this is one that just sticks with me and really really bothers me this one i i wanted to do because of of the time frame that it happened in, because I think it's very relatable to people our age. Mm-hmm. The way, well, I mean, he was almost exactly my age. Oh yeah, I know. And so you know, he grew up a lot of the same way we did, mm-hmm. and everything. And um, you know, it did change a lot of the laws and stuff like that. So I thought it would be an important one to do. But it, it is really heavy. Like it, it, it's depressing, super depressing. So we wanted to give you a heads up on that before we get started on it. Right. So, um, this is the case of Jacob Wetterling. So, Jacob Wetterling was born in Little Prairie, Minnesota, to parents Jerry and Patty, Patty Wetterling on February 17, 1978. That was the same year you were born, mm-hmm. so it's pretty close. Um, Jacob was the second of four children. He had an older sister named Amy, a younger brother, Trevor, and a younger sister, Carmen. Uh, Jacob was like... Most normal kids, he loved football, um, loved to play it, watch it. Um, They said he collected a lot of football cards and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, He enjoyed the game of Clue, which, you know, we did as well growing Mm -hmm. up. Um, His favorite food was steak, um, and his best friend was Aaron Larson. And he had dreams of either being a professional football player or a veterinarian, Mm -hmm. which a lot of kids do. And, um, And there's actually a video of him telling you know about himself i guess it was for a school project yeah actually i think it said it was taken not long before this happened mm-hmm. like pretty close mm-hmm. so and it's pretty heartbreaking it's but um if you go out and watch that to uh, know what's happened to him but uh like i said very normal kid everyday kid in the late 80s which is the time period we're going to be talking about this takes place on sunday october 22nd 1989 Um, Jacob's parents had gone to a get-together at a friend's house. Jacob and his 10-year-old brother Trevor and their 11-year-old friend Aaron were staying there at their house. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a babysitter also that came over at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, So the boys decided that they wanted to go to a convenience store that was about a mile away and rent a video to watch. And so they actually called their parents to get permission to do this. Which, I I put this in my notes. 
I thought it was cool that they called to ask permission. No, a lot of kids would have just I gone. Mean, well, because they had done this several times. Mm-hmm. They, this wasn't the first time they were going to ride to the store. No. It was, you know, they took their bikes to the store on a fairly regular basis. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've all, it, this again, is late 80s. We all had a store near your house yep. that you would either walk to or ride to. And it was just a routine. You just did it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, now people are so... You wouldn't do it now. No, you wouldn't do it now. Yeah. But at the time, it was, you know, common. Yeah. It wasn't... Nobody would think anything about that. You hopped on your bike and you went. Right. Uh, that's what all kids our age did. Right. And so they had ridden this route many times. So it was very familiar to them. Yeah. So it was nothing out of the ordinary for them to do this. I think this was around 9 o'clock. So um, they called to ask their parents' permission to go to the store. And they talked to their mother first. And she told them no. Mm-hmm. So they waited a little bit and called back and talked to their dad. And he told them that they could go as long as they wore their reflective vests and flashlights, flashlights and things like that. So well, they they were concerned that they it was dark because right. like I said, it was close to 9 o'clock in late October. So it was getting darker earlier, you know, than mm-hmm. it would be in the summer. But they were worried about getting hit by a car or, right. you know, something like that. They weren't worried about, you know what does take place but um so they go to the video well it's not a video store it's a convenience store that Mm -hmm. has videos um they rent a movie and on their way back a man with a gun and a stocking mask over his face came out from beside of a driveway and told the boys to throw their bikes in the ditch and lie face down on the ground the man asked um each of the boys how old they were and he told Trevor, who was the youngest, to run into the woods and not look back or he would kill him. And then he told the other two boys to turn over so he could look at them. And he told Aaron to do the same thing he had told Trevor. And that was the last time that anybody saw Jacob alive. Mm-hmm. I read, um, well, actually, I heard it in a uh, another podcast. Um, it's called In the Dark. It's They do their whole first season on this case. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not really a true crime. It's more of an investigative piece. Right. But it's really good, and people should go listen to it. But um, they talked to Aaron several years later, and he said that they got to the, um, he said they got maybe 50, 75 yards away, mm-hmm. and they did stop and turn around and look. But they were already gone. They were already gone. Yeah, I had read that too, that mm-hmm. they did turn around and mm-hmm. he was gone. So basically, the kids go back to the house and they tell the babysitter. And the babysitter tells calls her dad and tells her tells him what's happened. So um, the man, um, the babysitter's dad's name was Merlin. And um, he called the police right then. And the investigation pretty much started very quickly as far as, like, mm-hmm. being, the police being notified. Right. And, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of time for an escape. No, and um, like we had mentioned as we were doing the research for this case, they lived on a dead-end street. Mm-hmm. So it was one main street, and then there were several cul-de-sacs that split off. But there was only one main road going in and out. Right. And the first deputy was on scene within seven minutes of the 911 call. Right. So it wasn't a whole lot of time Mm-mm. between, you know, when he was actually taken. I mean, it was like seven minutes right. time. So Well, plus the time that it took the boys to get back to the house. Well, seven minutes from the phone call. Right, so yeah. So you're talking maybe 15 20 20 minutes, minutes. you know, so, um, but 
they he also the neighbor also called um Jerry and Patty at the party and told them the boys went to the store, you know, and um Jacob didn't come back. Mm-hmm. And so they were about 30, I think it was about 25 30 minutes away before yeah um or on their way back. And I, I on that in the dark piece that I was listening to, it had a lot of interviews with both of them, the parents. And she said they didn't say anything to each other the whole way home. Well, yeah, because your mind is probably going a million miles a minute thinking, you know, what's happened, you know, what's, you know, because you don't know. She said the only thing she said was who let them go Mm because she didn't know they were going because, you know, she had told them no. And I guess she didn't know they had called back and talked to their father. Oh. And so I imagine that caused quite a bit of strife in their marriage. And but. You know, you don't expect that to happen. No. And, I mean, you can't blame anybody for that. But I, I would imagine that was the longest 30-minute ride Oh, yeah, ever. I'm sure. Well, for several reasons. Oh, yeah. You don't know what's happened to your child. You don't know any of the details, really. It's, yeah, that would be terrifying, honestly. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know another word that, right off the top of my head, but that's just every parent's worst nightmare. Yeah. So, like we said, the first sheriff's deputy from the Stearns County Sheriff's Department um, arrived on the scene seven minutes after the 911 call and uh, he talked to the boys and asked them if you know they would take him back to where they had been kidnapped or where Jacob was last seen and um, so they took him out and they found the bikes in the ditch mm-hmm. um, at the end of a long gravel driveway that led off to a farmhouse mm-hmm. and um, so that's basically where the search began so, um, like we said, police were on the scene super quick. Mm-hmm. And um, the farmhouse, or at the end of the driveway of the farmhouse that uh, the bikes were found at, lived a man named Dan Rassier. Mm-hmm. And he was a music teacher at a local school. Uh, he was 33 at the time that this happened in 89. Uh, he lived with his parents. Uh, it was a huge farm. They said it was uh, over 150 acres. I think it was like 158, or mm-hmm. something like that. But um, he was very much into music. Obviously, he was a music teacher, but he had a massive record collection. Mm-hmm. And so his parents were out of, t- out of town at the time, and so he was home alone. But he was in his room uh, organizing this record collection. Mm-hmm. And now, and also, I mean, this family had lived on this land for like a really long mm-hmm. time. It wasn't like they were new to the area. Mm-hmm. I mean, the family had gone back, from what I remember reading, like a couple of generations, they mm-hmm. had been on this farm. Mm-hmm. So people know. knew him. Yeah. I, I mean, like we said, it's a small town and people knew him and they were well traveled and, and he was too. And he had, uh, you know, after he had gone through school and everything, he found a job close to home so he could move in and help his dad with the farm mm-hmm. because he needed help. But, um, so he was at home alone on the evening of the 22nd and, uh, he saw headlights coming down the gravel driveway. Mm-hmm. And uh, curious because he wasn't expecting anyone, and like we said, his parents were out of town, uh, he noticed a blue vehicle coming up the driveway and turned around in his, right in front of the house, because it curved right around in front of the, in front of the house. And um, so then it turned around, went back out toward the main road. Mm-hmm. And he said that time was about 9.15, which would have been about the time the boys were coming back. Yeah, had come back. Mm-hmm. He didn't really think anything else of it, thought they might have just turned the wrong turn or turn around or whatever. So he went to bed and his dog started barking around 1030. And uh, he got up, looked out the window and he could see several lights like around a wood pile, like flashlights and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And he thought somebody was coming to steal 
I guess that was a thing around there. People would steal firewood and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And he was like, well, I could go out there and confront them, but it looks like there's more than one. Right. So I'll call the police instead. So he calls 911, and they tell him a kid is missing, and the search is in that area. Mm-hmm. So he decides to go down and talk to the deputies. He goes and talks to one deputy, and they tell him that a boy had been kidnapped. And uh, they... They don't really ask him any questions. You know? Now, at the time, though, he did tell them about the car that turned yeah, around in the driveway. He told them that a car, had come, mm-hmm. a blue car, had come down and, dri- and turned around in his driveway. So he was forthcoming from the beginning. Very, and, you know, he said in later reports he wished he would have insisted that they come check his property. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. He said, well, I'll go check my outbuildings. And like we said, this is a 150-some acre farm. You can't check everything. One person can't check. Well, and this is at night, too. And at night. Yeah, I mean, you're 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And so um, he goes and checks a few of the outbuildings towards his house, but um, doesn't find anything. But uh, that comes into play later, mm-hmm. too. Right. So basically, the trail kind of goes cold on this. Um, they don't really find anything that night that leads them to a suspect or anything like that. Well, I had heard, too, and I don't know if you came across this, that they didn't question anyone like any of that night, yeah. Like people in the area, neighbors, things like that. I don't. I don't like to bash police as far as them doing their job or whatever. But I do think that when a child goes missing, and especially in an area like that where it is, it's it's cul-de-sacs, mm-hmm. and it, it one there's nowhere you can go. Yeah, I would think a door-to-door would be necessary. Uh, they said there were about a hundred families living on that in that area at the mm-hmm. time. I, I would think that a door-to-door search. Would have been necessary that night. Right. Well, here's the thing. They have the other two kids telling them a man with a gun and mm-hmm. a stocking on his face told, did this to us. So it's not a question of, did he just run off? Mm-hmm. You know that there's somebody has him. Mm-hmm. You know it. Mm-hmm. So there should be a real sense of urgency, and I'm sure there probably was, but it just seems like you do everything possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, you shut off the roads. You don't let anybody in or out. Like, I just, like you said, it, it's hard to question because we're not professionals in this. But when, as an outsider looking in, you wonder, you know, mm-hmm. why wasn't this done or why wasn't? And it, you know, doesn't make sense to us. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think part of it, too, though, when you're dealing with smaller rural police departments who aren't used to dealing with this kind of thing that makes a difference too like when you have a police department who kind of is familiar with this type of investigation Mm -hmm. they know better what needs to be done right then Mm -hmm. that could you know make all the difference and so when you have these smaller towns that get this put on them they just don't make they're just not they you know who knows if they even had to investigate something like this before well in that in the dark podcast and i hate to keep referring back to that but i did a lot of my research by listening to that series because it was just it was very informative but um they had had like a quadruple homicide recently recently like within the i think it was within the last 10 years in the in this area that was botched majorly i mean there's no other way around it it was botched yeah and so i mean I don't know what they dealt with besides that, but, I mean, if you have a history of, you know, investigations not being done thoroughly and stuff like that, I would think it would be time to, you know, 
reevaluate your department. Right. But they did get the FBI in quickly. Right. Um, they got other, you know, law enforcement agencies in quickly. They had helicopters. They had uh, bloodhounds on the ground. But they did call off the search at 3 o'clock that night. Yeah. I mean, he's only been gone six hours. Mm-hmm. Not even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> and once it goes past five hours, it if there's a percentage that if they're found within the first five hours, there's a chance. But once you get to that 24 hours, you know that it's like an 80% chance, 90% chance they're not going to be found alive. And so those first 24 hours are so crucial. And then they spend basically four or five hours searching for him the first night mm-hmm. and don't even talk to any of the neighbors. And many neighbors were outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because this is, you know, a decent time of year. They said it was unseasonably warm in for Minnesota. Minnesota at this yeah. time of year. Yeah, that people were still outside and, you know, it was on the weekend still, it's Sunday night. And, I mean, people were people saw the boys mm-hmm. on their bikes and everything, and they were never questioned. Some were questioned the next day. Some were questioned two weeks. Some people said they weren't questioned for months. So, um, I mean... You got to take an honest look at it because, I mean, the facts are the facts. Mm-hmm. They weren't interviewed. Right. So. Well, on October 24th, um, an FBI profiler joins the case and describes the perpetrator as a likely a white loner with a physical deformity who committed a similar crime in his past. That's interesting. Here's my <laughs> thought about this, though, because... I was just looking at the dates. Okay, so this happened on October 22nd, mm-hmm. and then this was on October 24th. That's two days. Well, really, you can't count the 24th because that was at night. But I'm thinking compared 1989 to 2021. Mm-hmm. People would know about this. Immediately. I mean, you would have an Amber Alert going out. You would have, you know, it would be all over the news. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a difference, too. Mm-hmm. You know, People do know now, and you can't, like, you can't just, you know, count on people are not going to hear about this. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, now if a kid in your neighborhood goes missing, you're going to know, like, towns over are going to know. It's mm-hmm. it's just going to spread. Like, people are going to be on the lookout. Yeah. And you think about what a difference that could have made mm-hmm. if people knew yeah. and were able to, you know, I don't know. It's just... A different fortunate. It is, it is. But I just thought when I was writing this out, I was like, you know, two days. Really, it's just more like a day and a half, right? But you know how much that has changed since 1989. Mm-hmm. How much information would be out there in a day? Yeah, like people would know, and they would be looking for him. Mm-hmm. You know, in other areas, because that would have been so crucial. I mean, if because people did see things that night. They saw the car. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they saw the boys. That gave a timeline and everything like that. And like you said, you would have got an Amber Alert on your phone, and been like, "Oh, I can go tell the police right now because because mm-hmm. they're not getting questioned by the police. So I can go tell the police right now. I saw oh, this. I saw this car. Or mm-hmm. I, you know, I saw this person. Or I mean, it, it may not have changed the outcome, mm-hmm. but because there wasn't a whole lot of time to act on this. You're talking. A few hours. Yeah, a few hours. He drove around. Well, uh, we'll get into that later. But, But, yeah, so um, then on October 26th, um, a national TV show, I believe it was A Current Affair, did a story on the case. And so that that did give it some national attention. So, And I think that was part of the problem, though, was the national attention on it. Because 
when it's a rural town, because we, we're from a rural town, most likely the, the person that did it is going to be in that town or close by, you know, next town over, you know, an hour away. It's not going to be somebody across the country, Well, typically. That's true, but the more people that know about it, the more you can get the information out there, the more likely it is somebody might see. Because didn't, we didn't know at the time. He could have taken Jacob and driven, just started driving and ended up two states over. Yeah. Or more. You don't know. So, I, but I see what you're saying, too. That, you know, makes it... It flooded them. With, I mean, because yeah. they, they started getting, like, a ton of, you know, calls saying, well, I saw Jacob in New Mexico. Yeah. Or I saw him in California. Or... All these psychics calling and and stuff like that, and it, mm-hmm. it just kind of it flooded any real leads that may come in, and I think that was part of the problem that they didn't really do an investigation close to home before it blew up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like you would start at your core and kind of work out, right? And and that's not what happened in this case. Yeah, well, that's true, but it does. Here's the funny thing too. Okay, so in November. They do a mailing campaign to put the information out to, like, truck stops and hospitals and things like that. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. It's like a mailing. Mm-hmm. Do you, I mean, that's crazy to think about. Yeah. They yeah. had to, you know, send mailings. Yeah. So that people would hang up the pictures. Now, you know, they would just print it out and hang it up. Yeah. You know, it, it's just, I don't know. It just, the technology is so different. Yeah. It makes a difference. You know, when this happened to Jacob, the kids used to ride their bikes to school. Oh, and, yeah. I mean, all the bike racks were empty, and, uh, you know, nobody was letting their kids play outside. No. Especially after dark, and they, you know, you just didn't see kids outside playing, which in 1989 would have been odd. Yeah, it would have been know? a big deal. But, I mean, everybody was just so scared to death. Because they didn't know. hmm Well, and the thing about it is, you know, can you imagine if you were Aaron or Trevor? Mm-hmm. How traumatized they had to be. Mm-hmm. Like, I just can't even imagine. Yeah. It's like, especially, I think it's almost worse for Aaron because he basically looked at them and just picked picked one. Yeah. It's yeah. like that easily. I mean, what if he had picked me? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's just so, I, I can't even imagine what they went through. One well, reports with him, he has struggled, like, severely with it. He left the country. Like, yeah. he moved away, left the country. Um, You know, he says that he feels like the biggest coward in the world. And I'm like, you, he's were, ele- 11 you were 11 years, years old. Years old. Yeah. You were a kid. I mean. He's not the coward. No, he's not the coward. But, I mean, you would have the, it's almost survivor's guilt, mm-hmm. even at 11 years old. And it's just, I mean. We ran with it, you know, kids in our neighborhood, and I could not imagine, and all of us were basically the same age. Mm-hmm. There were a couple that were your age, there were a couple that were my age. That's how the whole neighborhood was, and if something like that would have happened, it would have totally devastated me. Oh, yeah. It, it would have devastated our entire community, and so I can't imagine what this family and the town and and his friend mm-hmm. and the brother, obviously, uh, I can't imagine them going through that no but can you imagine that at 11 years old having that kind of guilt on your shoulders no when it's not misplaced guilt it is yeah totally i just i feel for them so bad because you know i just can't imagine mm-hmm. but um so eventually police released two sketches of the potential suspect on december 16 1989 um the inter that uh, the fbi interviews danny 
I'm going to say Heinrich. Is that right? Yes, I believe so. Um, they actually interviewed him on the 16th, December 16th, and they also interviewed him on January 12th of 1990. They talked to him about Jacob's disappearance and the sexual assault of another boy that had happened nine months before Jacob's disappearance. And his name was Jared, and I don't know if I'm going to say this right either, Cheryl or Shirel. I'm not sure. Not <laughs> sure. So on the second interview on uh, January 12th, they actually get samples from his tennis shoes and hair samples. So they suspect him, his involvement in some way. Okay, so we're talking this was January 12th, 1990. So less than three months. Yes, that they talked to him. So Jared, uh, he was a 12-year-old boy, and he had been kidnapped and sexually assaulted in January of 1989. It was in Cold Spring, Minnesota. Um, It's about 10 miles away from where Jacob had been abducted. Wow. Um, He was walking home from a cafe, and a car pulled up beside of him and asked him for directions. And while he was giving directions, the man pulled out a gun and forced him into the car. Jared's description of his kidnapper was almost identical to Trevor and Aaron's description of the man that took Jacob. The man kidnapped and assaulted Jared and then told him the same thing that he had told Aaron and Trevor that to run away and don't look back or he would kill him. Okay. So we know this what are the chances the this is two different same. Yeah, what are the chances this is two different people? It's Highly, highly unlikely. I mean, these are identical stories. Ten miles apart. Ten miles apart. You have, that's the thing, you have Aaron and Trevor. That is, do you know how key that is? Mm-hmm. And the, and now you have What's, another kid who's saying, this happened to me. I just don't, it seems like they just had a lot to go, and they had already interviewed him. What, oh, did you find what brought them to him? Um, Actually, yes, I think, um... Based on Jared's description, they um, the car description, the car that he picked him up in, I think that's how they were able to trace it back to him. But the problem was, Jared was a young boy, too. They had a lineup, and um, he couldn't pick him out of the lineup, which is not uncommon. Right. And especially in a traumatic situation, yeah. you, you may not know. I mean, you're, you're a young 11 boy. 11 years old. Yeah. 12 years old. It's... So he couldn't identify him in a lineup, but they, this kind of blows your mind. They made him sit in the car that the kid, that he'd been kidnapped in. And he said, this is the car. So he knew he couldn't point him out. They put him in Heinrich's car. Yes. They put him in Heinrich's car. And he said, this is it. It was like, he gave it, I think I read out of 10, they asked him out of 10. He said at nine out of 10, this is the car. And this was in January of 89 when um, this happened? They, yes. It was in January, no. Or uh, 90. It was 89 when he was assaulted. It was January of 90 when they interview him. Okay. And, you know, Jared has given him this information. How, how did they talk that away? I mean. Well, it, it's, I, I don't exactly know. So, basically. What, what color was the car? Um, I didn't write it in my notes. I want to say in my head, I was thinking it was either I think it was black. It wasn't the same. I don't think it was the same. Okay. But um, I don't think it was blue. But, um, yeah. So, the police actually searched Heinrich's home. 
in late January, so sometime after his interview. And they found police scanners and photos of young boys in towels and underwear in his car, in the trunk of his car. I mean, this is January of 1990. Didn't Jared say, too, that, he, that whoever it was that had kidnapped him was listening to a police scanner, so he knew yes. how to avoid the... Yeah, when he was driving, he yeah. was... Yes, that he did. So they knew whoever did this had police scanners. Mm-hmm. They also... Who... What normal person is driving around with pictures of young boys in their underwear in their trunk? A sick monster. <laughs> This no is where way around it. This is where I'm having issues. It just doesn't. It, okay, so here's another thing, and they didn't specifically ever tie him to this, but um, it's possible. So in Painesville, which is not far away either, from September of 1986 until September of 1987, so for a year. There was a man that the locals had called Chester the Molester. Yes, I heard. Yeah, I read about that. And he would leap out from behind bushes and trees and he would grope kids or try to grope them. And they said he had done it to at least eight boys. And sometimes he wore mud on his face. Sometimes he wore a mask. Um, And the police had put that out there because they thought maybe it was all connected. My thing is, it probably was because escalation. Yes, the progression. Yes. Starts out. Fondling kids. Or peeping. Or peeping. Yeah. And, and then actually kidnaps one. And then Actually assaults on. them. And yeah. Then, yeah. So it, it makes sense that that would be the case. But, um, yeah, it, it just kind of, this is 1990, you know? Yeah. And I know it just, anyhow. So. <laughs> you put the boy in the car. And he says, and he nine, says out nine out of ten. ten it's, it, this, this is, is the it. car. This is the car. Yeah. You find all this evidence in his trunk of, you know, he's into little boys. Right. Basically. That should have been enough right there to get him. Well, he was arrested in February of 1990 um, uh, for the kidnap and assault of Jared Shirell. I hope I said that right. I don't know. They release him for lack of evidence. Because they can't specifically tie him because Jared can't pinpoint him out of the lineup even though he sat in the car and said this is the car they don't have any physical evidence so they had to let him go so they had to let him go so okay. he was arrested in february of and 1990 this is pre-dna stuff yeah i mean they did have hair samples from him but That's it wasn't anyway. well it actually is in this case this, it will be uh, i got you but um so anyhow, so basically that is where the investigation kind of trails off. Like there's not a whole lot that happens to further this along. And so you can imagine the parents and his siblings, just how heartbreaking this is to go for years and not know, mm-hmm. you know what happened. Decades. Yeah. And not know. Mm-hmm. We'll go back to something you had mentioned earlier. In 2004, the police go back and interrogate Dan Rassier. And he was the neighbor who reported the car turning around his driveway. They decide they think he's the suspect. They Mm -hmm. think he's the one. And I read that a lot of their thinking and why they, you know, decided he was the suspect is because it was a dead-end road. And so they thought that whoever was there 
didn't leave in a car that they were on foot mm-hmm. because the boys didn't report seeing a car mm-hmm. because they thought the man came out of the bushes. There was no car around. So that's, you know, they're thinking it has to be somebody who's here. Mm-hmm. They accuse him of the crime. This is a rural area. It gets around people here. He's being questioned. Um, they make him take lie detector tests. They search his property I read they even hypnotized him. Um, yeah, I mean, they did all kinds of things to him and find nothing mm-hmm. linking him to the crime. Nothing mm-hmm. at all. Um, but in 2010, so here we're skipping from 2004 to 2010. So this is six years that they're basically accusing him of this crime. Mm-hmm. They declare him a person of interest. With nothing. Okay, here's where I'm going to bring this up. Because when I was reading this and going through my notes... This is what really got me. I'm like, they have brought, arrested someone who has 9 out of 10 probability of having the car the kid was kidnapped in and is carrying around pictures of little boys in his trunk. And they let him go. For lack they, of ev- evidence. For lack of evidence. Yeah. And they turned their attention to this guy who's a teacher. He was forthcoming with information. They have nothing. They called the cops. Yeah. <laughs> Who would bring the attention to the area? Because mm-hmm. in that short amount of time, he couldn't have, like, disposed. I mean. It had to be in a car to get, I mean, to get away from the scene. I mean. You would think. He had to be in a car. But, so, they basically make this guy's life hell for six years. So, um, finally, in January 2012, DNA from the sweatshirt Jared Sherrill was wearing, or Shiro, I'm sorry. I don't know which way. Um, he had a sweatshirt on when he was abducted, and they still had it. They took DNA from the sweatshirt, mm-hmm. and there were two sources of DNA. One was Jared's, and the other was not. Um, so in July of 2015, the DNA was finally profiled. Another three years go by between that. But anyhow, um, <laughs> and... You're not going to believe this. Who was it? It's a match for the hair samples taken from Danny Heinrich in 1990. No kidding. <laughs> so they finally are able to say, you are the one who kidnapped and assaulted Jared. And so um, in late July of 2015, Heinrich's home was searched and investigators found 19 three-ring binders containing child pornography handcuffs, duct tape, camouflage clothes, and four bins of boys-sized clothing. What the heck? He had, well, he had basically been making his own child pornography, and he had also been videotaping neighborhood children, like, without, like, he would video them without them knowing. And um, he admitted that these items were his. That's, that's sick. And I know. But, okay, again... If you go back to 1990, we are now in 2015. That just blows my mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, how he was able to just Mm -hmm. get by with this for that long. I just, anyhow. So a formal complaint was filed against him in October of 2015. So in August of 2016, um, they actually make a plea deal with Danny Henrik or Heinrich, however you say it. What had happened, because he had only sexually assaulted Jared and kidnapped him, the statute of limitations had run out. 
which kind of surprises me. I don't know what the statute of limitations are. I know sexual assault does have the statute of limitations. Kidnapping? But I didn't know kidnapping did. I probably should have, a child? should have looked into that a little more. But it said that the statute of limitations had run out. So in order, they knew basically at this point that he was the one that had taken Jacob. They, you know, because of the description from the kids and... um the same motive, you know, motive, a modus operandi. Yeah. I don't know if I said that right. I always say that wrong, but yeah, so they knew it was him. So in order to bring closure for the family, they make a plea deal with him that if he will show them where Jacob's remains are, they will only charge him with the pornography charges and not the kidnapping and murder. And Jacob's family agreed to this because it had already been so long 26 years. Yeah. And they wanted the closure. And so... I I know that's the only way they could have ever found him, really, was to make the deal. But that's such crap. It is. I mean, he he got by with murder. I mean, he is in prison and everything, but without having that charge on him, I I think that that's... I think that's terrible. I really do. Well, I, I just... I just feel like this could have been so different, mm-hmm. like, from, for the parents. I think it just could have been a, they, I mean, they had to go through this for this. I just can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. And, and we didn't mention this either, but at the time when, you know, especially when the FBI was involved and when they were on People Magazine and, you know, on um, the Geraldo Rivera show and stuff like that, they were getting so many different leads or so-called leads from all around the country and everything that they actually put a recording device on the Wetterling home. And people would call there at all hours of the night. Mm-hmm. And there would be people that were calling and saying that they were Jacob. Uh, who? And I don't mm-hmm. know what sick kid. And I know they were kids. But still, these parents or people claiming that they had them or they knew where they were and stuff. And... I, I saw Jacob at this hotel, and, you know, I know he's in there. I have Jacob sitting right here with me. Well, let me speak to him. And then they put another kid on the phone to make it sound like Jacob. It, it They went through this for years mm-hmm. and years and years, and to finally get to a point where we're going to know what happened to mm-hmm. him. Regardless. Regardless. Because nothing's going to bring him back. No. But at least we'll be able to say this is what happened. Although, one, when you read the account, I don't know what's worse, honestly, mm-hmm. to know or not know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I really don't. I mean, I would want to know what happened to him, but I don't know that I would want to know every detail. Yeah. But maybe you would. I don't know. I've never yeah. hope never be in that situation. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know what would be worse. Well, in court, Heinrich stated, and I'm not going to go into everything that actually happened because it's it's just not, I'm just not going to do it because I can't get through it anyway. But he stated that he had seen the boys while driving Mm -hmm. and he had probably been to this area before. Yeah. Because of... Well, he he had probably been videoing kids there too. You wouldn't have known, you know, this area without having been there before. Right. And like we said, he's probably videoed these kids without their knowledge and everything. And um, so he saw the boys while he was driving and... He turned into Dan Rassier's driveway, like mm-hmm. Dan Rassier had told the police since that very night, mm-hmm. and basically lied in wait for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, 
he got Jacob, he handcuffed him, uh, he put him in his car, and he drove around with him for about a half an hour to 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Jacob was asking what he did wrong. Mm -hmm. And that just breaks my heart. And um, because, I mean, you got this 11-year-old boy, Mm -hmm. and it just breaks my heart. But um, so he drove out to a gravel pit outside of Painesville where he was living at the time. Well, I had also read that the reason he decided to go to Painesville was because the police presence was so heavy. Because he had the scanner in his car. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he got Jacob out of the car and um, made him undress and uh, did unspeakable things to him. You know, molested him. I won't go into too much detail on that. And that um, he undressed as well, I believe. He did. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that in a report, Mm -hmm. too. Uh, that uh, Jacob cried and told him he was cold and he wanted to go home. And he told him to be quiet. And he was crying. He was an 11-year-old boy who had just been molested and who knows what else. And uh, when he wouldn't stop crying, Heinrich shot him twice. This wasn't a well-thought-out plan on his part. Because um, he, he took him over to bury him. And he realized... It was going to take a lot mm-hmm. to bury. People don't realize how much it's going to actually I, that take. Is some, that is something, you know, that people don't, like, you can't, it's not easy to bury a body. No. I mean, they say six feet deep for a reason. I mean, mm-hmm. you got to go six feet deep. But, um, so he, uh, and this is something too, he goes and steals a backhoe from a farm that, or a work site that's well, right he was, nearby. He was familiar with it, yeah. I think. And he said that he knew how to drive the backhoe. So he went and the keys were in it. Yeah. And so, but I read actually that um, he actually left the body there and went to his house and yep. changed clothes and everything. And then went back a couple hours later. With a shovel. And and when he got there with the shovel, he realized he couldn't do it. You're right. Yep. So then he went and stole the backhoe and buried the body and just put some brush over it to try to make it look, you know, like it hadn't been, um, you know, it wasn't obvious that it was dug up right then. Mm-hmm. I had actually read a little bit different account, though, that said that he told the police that he told Jacob to put his clothes back on and they were heading back to the car and he saw police cars in the distance mm-hmm. and it freaked him out. So he told Jacob to turn around that he had to pee. Why he would be concerned about that at this point, I don't know. Right. But he told him to turn around. And when he turned around and he shot him twice. Oh, I didn't hear that. So I, I don't know. It could one. be, I, I'm not sure. But either way. Either way, it's. Yeah. Horrific. Absolutely horrific. So, um, yeah. So I, he had um, went home and then come back and buried the body. And. Here, so he leaves the body there. He went back a year later and saw Jacob's jacket sticking yeah. out of the ground, his red reflective jacket. He saw it sticking out of the ground. And so he dug up as many of the remains as he could get. He got the jacket and what other clothes that were there and put them in a garbage bag and reburied them across the road. And so that was 27 years between when he confessed in court to... You know, when almost the mur- to the day. Yeah, pretty close mm-hmm. to when the crime occurred. So that's 27 years that they had to 
wonder and not know. So basically, yeah, so that he got away with it for 27 years. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping his life was hell while, you know, that he was wondering any day they're going to come and take me, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, honestly, in this case, had it not been for the sexual assault of Jared, he probably wouldn't have, he would have gotten by with it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I don't foresee any change because the DNA they got from the assault of Jared. So that's I, what brought, yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't know that it would have. I don't know that they ever would have solved it. Yeah. So he was sentenced to twenty years in prison and um, could possibly get out in seventeen years, but the judge told him because of the nature of the crime and how heinous it was, basically that it's likely he'll ever. Get out of prison, which right. they should put him under it. I mean, there's no, there's no rehabilitating that. That's I'm something. Sorry. I, actually, that's something I was going to bring up. You know, I think that everyone deserves a second chance, except for child molesters. I think that anyone that would hurt a child or a child killer, whatever, anyone that would do that to a child, there is something fundamentally wrong with them, and it can't be fixed. I don't I, think so either. I just, I don't think it can. It seems like these cases, it's all, it always escalates. They start out, you know, molesting, and by the end of it, they've raped and murdered kids. Anybody that would do that, in my opinion, does not deserve to see the light of day. Yeah. I mean... I I just can't even imagine. The, yeah. And it actually evokes emotions in me, like when I read this stuff. Like, I will, I want to do him physical harm. Yeah, I hear you. Like, I would like to, like, beat the hell out of him. Yeah. To, I would, you yeah. know. And I think that any normal, compassionate human would have the same feelings. Well, and especially, you know, you're a mother of a young boy. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought about that, too, when I was reading it. I was like... I have nephews that aren't much younger than Jacob was mm-hmm. at the time. And the thoughts of anything like that happening to any of them, it's just too much to bear. And I don't know how the parents do it. I, I don't really either. don't. Because I honestly don't know how you would go on. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of the Wetterlings, um, a lot actually came out of this mm-hmm. case. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you want to talk about that? Well, in 1994, um, the federal Jacob Wetterling Act was passed, and it was the first law to institute a state sex offender registry. So, before this, you know, sex offenders were not, you know, they they weren't kept track of. Like, they weren't in a database like they are now. You can't pull them up. Um, the law has actually been amended a couple of times. The first time was um, by Megan's Law in 1996, and I believe that one was um, basically making it so they the neighbors had the right to know mm-hmm. because the Wetterling Act established the database that they have to register, but the Megan's Law made it um, so that, number one, the offender had, like, it wasn't voluntary. They had to register mm-hmm. because previously it was kind of like, you know, we may not know where you are. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. But with Megan's law, they made it mandatory that they register with the um, sex offender list Mm -hmm. registry. And then it was amended again in 2006 with the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act. The Adam Walsh Child Protection Safety Act, basically what it does is it makes a tiered 
level of the crimes. Mm -hmm. Because some people who have to be on the registry... It's trivial things. Well, I mean, there, I mean, there are levels for this. That's one thing that Jacob's mom has said that um, that's the regret that she has with being involved with the registry. Yeah, I mean, it's been great in helping, you know, uh, I'm sure. I don't know the data points on it. I would like to see the data points on where it was actually used to, mm-hmm. you know, either deter, you know, crimes or help, you know, catch somebody. I, I would like to see the data points on that. However... She said that she was, you know, she does a lot of speaking, I think, uh, speaking engagements and stuff, but that she goes into, like, these juvenile um, homes and stuff like that, and you'll have a boy who is, like, 12 years old who is on the registry because he flashed, you know, flashed somebody. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, a 12-year-old shouldn't have to deal with that for the rest of their life, you know? And the same thing about... And I may get raked across coals for this one, but you know, a eighteen, nineteen year old who has a seventeen, sixteen year old girlfriend, you know, yeah. statutory rape, they're going to end up on a yeah register, and it, it's not right. It's it, not the same. It's not the same. I mean, we're talking actual child molesters versus someone who you know was a couple years older than somebody when they dated, and they got a set of overzealous parents. Yeah, I, so it's not the same. Well, that yeah. she said her intent for was to protect children, right. was you know for child predators and all that, but it just grew a little too big than what she anticipated it being. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I totally understand her her saying that because I think the same way. I don't know, like, how... I I don't know of any cases right off that I remember that the registry actually solved it. Mm -hmm. But I do know it makes them look at them a lot quicker. Yeah. So I think that it can help in that sense that it can maybe narrow down the potential suspect pool quicker. Because if you know that there is a sexual... Somebody on the list that lives, you know a couple streets over, you can at least go talk to them and make, you know, you can either rule them out or you can be, you know, mm-hmm. whereas then they didn't know. Right. So I think it, I think it has been a positive thing, but I agree, you know, that it, there are, it all is not the same. Right. There are levels of, you know. I think it probably needs to be revamped. I think probably so. Yeah. Yeah. Restructured. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that um, this case is just one. You know, I think there are several reasons it really affects me. Number one, he was really close to my age, and like you said, we did this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we rode our bikes to the store. We, you know, at night. I at, mean, we were at out. You know, in playing. the summers, we were out till way past dark till mom hollered for us to come home. That's just the way it was. Yeah, late eighties, early nineties, and so now, you know, I think that's why information gets out quicker. And that makes people more paranoid. Right. Now, whether or not you think that's a good thing is, you know, you know, people will say, oh, you, everybody's helicopter parents now and everything. But I would rather be a helicopter parent than to have to go through this. Oh, absolutely. I yeah. mean, if people are going to throw stones at me for being overly cautious, I don't care. For people calling you Beverly Goldberg. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, that's a little extreme. But, <laughs> but no, I, I would rather err on the side of caution and know that my kid is at home safe than to make a mistake in judgment and it be, you know, hopefully nothing like this would ever happen. But 
you can you can't imagine the amount of guilt that would cause. Right. So I just yeah. So you know, I don't know. It, you can see both sides of it. I mean, yeah, it yeah. was nice to have more freedom and kids out and everything, but you are more aware mm-hmm. now of the sick people in the world. Mm-hmm. So. Now, this one's a tough one to get through. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, if you made it to the end, we appreciate you sticking with us because right. it, it was pretty heavy. But it's important to talk about these that establish these things, like the sex offender list um, registry. That's where it came from, and it's important to talk about it. And I, I also read, you know, you don't want to... When people die, a lot of times people don't talk about them anymore because they don't want to bring them up because they're afraid it upsets people. Mm-hmm. But I've also I've read that it's actually the opposite, that people like to talk about them because that makes them feel like they know that they existed. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's important, too. Yeah, especially with somebody that young. Mm-hmm. They yeah. made it, and what a difference he actually ended up making in yeah. the world. Yeah. At, you know, 11 years old. Yeah. But, but yeah, um... I just, I have no, no sympathy for these people. I don't even. None. I mean, like I said, the reading this is just, it's, it's very hard to get through and it makes you really, I mean, I'm not a violent person, but. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. It's, it's rough. Yeah. But, you know, we continue to think about the Waterling parents and like we said, Aaron's, uh, Aaron's his friend, you know, how much he's had to deal with his whole life dealing with this too. And so, you know, we just want to keep thinking about them because, you know, they they have to live with it every day. We talk about it on a podcast for an hour, hour 15 minutes. But, um, and like these cases stick with you. Mm-hmm. That's what I was telling somebody who had messaged me about the podcast. Um, uh, they were talking about one of the ones we'd done that had stuck with them. And, um, Certain ones, I mean, all of them are horrific. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no way murder is, it, it's horrific. And, um, but some of them, especially the ones involving children or especially abuse case, like, you know, sexually abusing kids and stuff like that, those stick with you a lot longer than, mm-hmm. you know, um, a, Not jil- that- a jilted woman or, you know, uh, a husband who finds his wife cheating mm-hmm. or, you know, Wants to get rid of her. I mean, it's just some of them stick with you longer, and so that yeah, this one's been a tough one to get through. Mm-hmm. But we just hope that somehow that they're able to be at peace. Yeah, the family and the friends. I mean, you just hope that they can. So that's been the Jacob Wetterling episode, and we appreciate you listening. And um, be sure to check out our website, one murder at a time dot com. Um, We will have two episodes coming out this week, so we'll go a little lighter for the next one. Uh, We'll see you on the next one. Later. Doses.